Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving, in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Sarah Howell Miller, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm a United Methodist minister, and I live in what is currently known as Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on the ancestral lands of the Tutelo, Okanichi, and Kiawe peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. The Psalter for this Palm Sunday in Year C is Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, and verses 19 through 29. More on translations later, but I'm reading from the New International Version while making my own adaptations of replacing male pronouns for God with simply the name God. Give thanks to the Lord, for God is good. God's love endures forever. Let Israel say, God's love endures forever. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for God is good. God's love endures forever. The gospel text for this Palm Sunday comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? 
They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. At this point in the liturgical cycle last year, I got really hung up on a potentially silly detail. We call this Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday, yet palms make no appearance in some accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Here in Luke, people spread their cloaks on the road. In Matthew, last year's gospel lectionary text, we get both cloaks and tree branches, but it doesn't say what kind of tree. Only in the Gospel of John do we read that those present waved palm branches. And it doesn't really matter, I suppose, but it did lead me down a bit of a rabbit hole learning about the Judean date palm. The Judean date palm was once abundant in the Middle East. The fruit of the date palm was a staple food in the Judean desert, and the tree itself was a source of shelter. Its leaves and branches could be used for everything from building materials to basket weaving, and vinegar and syrups could be made from the sap. Many Jewish scholars believe that the honey in a land flowing with milk and honey was actually date honey. The date palm was a symbol of Judah and a metaphor for spiritual growth. Psalm 92.12 reads, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. The date palm was both an important symbol of the culture and a cornerstone of the region's economy, but being central to the local economy made it a target for invading forces. When the Roman Empire took control of the kingdom in 70 CE, they intentionally destroyed the palm trees in the course of their conquest in order to weaken the local economy. By 500 AD, the Judean date palm was extinct. Now, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the destruction of palm trees was still in the future, but looking back from our place in history, it is retroactively remarkable that at least according to John, Jesus was welcomed into the city with the waving of branches from trees that soon would be targeted for destruction by the Roman Empire as part of an occupation that wreaked havoc on the local economy, culture, and environment. We may be reminded of the destruction of American bison populations by pioneers in an effort to starve indigenous populations into submission, or the uprooting of over 800,000 olive trees since 1967 by Israeli authorities in Palestine as a form of land acquisition. And all this talk of empire brings me to the question of empire language in both our psalm and our gospel reading for this week. The title of Lord is very commonly used for God throughout scripture, often replacing the sacred name of God or a title denoting God's authority. Some of us may be accustomed to calling God by this title, while others may associate the term more with modern fantastical figures and stories, the Lord of the Rings, Lord Voldemort, Lord Vader, or it may evoke landlords, warlords, overlords. Regardless of association, Lord signifies hierarchy and separation. And while honoring the mystery and majesty of God has its place, replicating oppressive structures within human society and projecting them onto God never ends well. And so we have this psalm with its Lord, Lord, Lords, and in the gospel text, we even have Jesus referring to himself as Lord. 
In her resource, A Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church, Year W, The Year of the Woman, Womanist biblical scholar, the Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney, notes that in her translations, she only uses the title Lord for human beings, except for Jesus. In her rendering of Psalm 118, all those lords are replaced with titles that reflect the context and meaning of what is being said, turning Lord, Lord, Lord into living God, holy presence, font of creation, most high God, faithful one. As for Jesus calling himself Lord, Gaffney replaces that title with the Son of Woman. As in, after Jesus tells the disciples to go get him the donkey, if anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Son of Woman needs it. Dr. Gaffney breaks down the grammatical rationale for using this title, saying, Son of Woman and Woman Born both derive from the expressions previously and commonly translated as Son of Man in the KJV. The underlying Greek expression means son, male offspring of a human, person of either sex. And whether one speaks or writes from a human biological perspective or a theological one, the humanity of Jesus stems from his mother. Grammatically, son of woman and woman born are both correct. Verse 26 of Psalm 118 is quoted in the chants of the crowd as Jesus enters Jerusalem, though with kingly language that Dr. Gaffney again says she avoids when it comes to God and Jesus. Rather than blessed is the king or blessed is he, Dr. Gaffney renders it, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Holy One. This translational question is relevant to our sacramental practice as this line shows up in many traditional Eucharistic responses. It reminds me of when I was in college and my campus minister was working on a dissertation in feminist theology. She was the first person I heard use the phrase, blessed is the one, rather than blessed is he, during the great Thanksgiving. I used to argue that since it was referring to Jesus, blessed is he was technically correct. Yet I have to acknowledge that in the context of Holy Communion, that phrase is not so explicitly tied to Jesus. And blessed is he, out of context, may exclude Maybe at least in the context of that holy meal, we might consider saying instead, blessed are we who come in the name of the Holy One. And language matters for gender justice as well as for anti-racism. If God is Lord, then God might also be master, a term that does get used for God. God as master might also be overseer. And certainly there's a case to be made for subverting human archetypes of Lord or master by re-envisioning and correcting them in God, but it's often hard to tell that kind of work from uncritical replication and projection, especially against the backdrop of white supremacist patriarchy. Even as we move toward more gender expansive language for and about God, we need to remember that the feminist movement has often centered white women's ideas and concerns, leaving black women behind. In her book, Echoing the Words of Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman? Bell Hooks writes, American women, without exception, are socialized to be racist, classist, and sexist in varying degrees, and labeling ourselves feminist does not change the fact that we must consciously work to rid ourselves of the legacy of negative socialization. Our white supremacist heteropatriarchal terms for and ideas about God might as well be cloaks that once kept some Christians warm, but they must now be laid on the road to be trampled by a donkey carrying the dark-skinned son of woman. And that's another Palm Sunday image I got stuck on, if less intensely than that of the date palm, the image of the donkey. We think of donkeys as stubborn or stupid, 
while things were still all virtual at the height of COVID, the church where my dad is a pastor borrowed a live donkey to film a processional for Palm Sunday, only for the donkey to refuse to budge. So they had to do some tricky camera work to make it look like it was processing. But my perception of donkeys forever changed when I worked on a property that was in part a large urban farm. The farm had a herd of cattle, and I noticed that there was one lone donkey always hanging around with the cows. I didn't understand why until I asked the farm manager. He explained that the donkey actually protected the cows from coyotes and other potential threats. Donkeys are aggressive to canines and will attack dogs, foxes, coyotes, and more that threaten the herd. In scripture, donkeys are sometimes a symbol of wisdom, contrary to our modern stereotype of these animals. But mostly donkeys signify service, suffering, and humility. That squares pretty well with both the role of the donkey in our gospel text for this week and with the theme of Holy Week in general. And it's a passive image, but when I hold it in tension with that of a guard donkey attacking coyotes, a different nuance emerges. On Palm Sunday, a donkey's body is put to service. With a cattle herd, a donkey puts its body in harm's way to protect the herd. And it makes me wonder, what does it look like for us as white folks to put our bodies in between BIPOC and what might harm them? I have friends and colleagues I admire who have done just that at protests and in movement spaces, protecting black and brown bodies with their own white bodies. I've witnessed people with all kinds of privilege physically accompany transgender and gender non-conforming people into unsafe spaces in order to protect them. This world already demands the sacrifice of black, brown, indigenous, and queer bodies. We whose bodies are deemed good by the dominant culture must consider what solidarity looks like beyond saying the right words. Until we can honestly claim a world that does not demand destruction for the sake of empire, those of us with privilege must be willing to step up, not only in our speech, but also with our bodies. And it's challenging to speak theologically of such things, of course. Toxic theologies have long demanded the use of our bodies, minds, and spirits by God in a way that easily becomes a proxy for abuse. We may be inspired by the donkey, but we are not donkeys who cannot consent to being ridden or even to being placed alongside a herd of cattle to protect. But when we co-create robust cultures of consent and solidarity alongside one another, we start to build a world where physically disrupting violence and oppression becomes imaginable in a way that is not replicating oppression, but resisting and subverting it. Resisting and subverting is exactly what Jesus is doing in this procession. Is imitating the triumphal entry of a conquering king while bringing a disruptive dose of humility and a clear rejection of dominating power. He rides not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He will wear not a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. He will be lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. He will be killed by the state, but he will rise again, inviting us all to practice resurrection here and now. Remember the Judean date palm? It was forced into extinction by 500 AD, but in the 1960s, excavations at Masada in the Judean desert revealed a jar holding dry seeds. And they turned out to be Judean date palm seeds. The seeds had been kept safe in that jar for centuries. Radiocarbon dating showed that they were about 2,000 years old. In 2005, after the seeds had been kept in storage another 40 years, a scientist sprouted a few of them and eventually grew a date palm tree. 
That tree, nicknamed Methuselah, is the oldest known tree seed that has been germinated successfully. Methuselah is a feat of archaeology, technology, botany, and science, but it's also a living sign of resistance to empire and its propensity to destroy. We may be reminded of the quote adapted from a couplet by Greek poet Dinos Christianopoulos, They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. May our anti-racist and anti-oppression work be seeds planted where we thought nothing would grow. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. We split every donation with a movement partner doing great work. You can donate online at bit.ly slash surgesf or find our podcast page at surge.org. We'll share the link on social media too. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. And of course, Deep gratitude to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Thank you.